right, we'll be in John chapter 19. The first hymn we sang this morning, uh, How Firm a Foundation, starts out with wonderful uh, words. It says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The Lord has placed so many prophecies regarding the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, everything that he would indeed accomplish, that we have a very firm foundation in front of us indeed in terms of everything that the Lord would accomplish. This Bible from beginning to end testifies about Christ and what he would accomplish. He says of himself, search the scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. So from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation to the very end of the Bible, it's always speaking about Christ. It shares with us the gospel from beginning to end. And what a wonderful and glorious thing it is for us that we have this in our possession, that we can make ready reference to it and read about Christ, all of the things that he has done. Again, the hymn continues, What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Well, I don't think he could say any more. He says that if uh, everything that he did uh, was written down, the books of the world would not fill it. So he has said a lot of things to us, and he has shared with us everything that he would um, share with us. Um, so let's continue with that, and we have already spoken many times about all of the prophecies that are fulfilled about Christ, and we're going to look at a couple of things in the law today. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments in terms of honoring your father and your mother and honoring the Sabbath day, because those things speak of what Christ did as well. So let's begin our reading in John chapter 19, verse 25, and read through verse uh, 37. John uh, 19, 25 through 37. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and broke the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with them. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, indeed we have a firm foundation written about the things that Christ hath done on our behalf. We pray thee, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, that we might see these things and behold them, trust and rest in Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Um, the title of this morning's sermon is Christ, the Preparation for Our Rest. 
Christ, the preparation for our rest. I'm going to speak really on, on two, uh, a couple of verses. I'm going to speak about um, Jesus uh, speaking to his, his mother and saying, Behold thy son. And then I'm going to go down to verse 31 and speak about the day of preparation. Um, both of those things teach us about Christ and the things that he has done. So I want us to keep in mind where Jesus is. Of course, he's on the cross. He's been... Uh, um, well, he's been brutally treated, he's been uh, shamed, he's been spat upon, he's been smitten, uh, he's been scourged, he's been uh, humiliated before his enemies, he's been paraded in front of the people, um, he's in undoubtedly great pain, uh, physical pain, and indeed uh, great emotional suffering before he went to the cross. He went to the garden and he prayed unto his father that if it were possible that this cup might be um, taken from him, but not according to my will, but rather thy will. And when he prayed thus, Scripture tells us that as it were, the sweat as it were, great drops of blood fell from him. Clearly, he's feeling the burden of his people's sin and what is required for him to accomplish their redemption before him. So he's suffering incredible things. And yet we spoke last week about how no one took his life from him, but as king of the Jews, he laid down his life. No one took it from him. He had the power to lay it down and to take it up again. And while he was on the cross, he spake very loudly because he was not short of breath, as one might expect someone suffering crucifixion. He was ever in command of the situation as king, ruling and reigning over everything. And we see him here now in verse 26 and 27 when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Jesus, though suffering terribly, expiating the sins of his people, yet cares for his mother. He's yet always ministering to others around him. We talked on another occasion about that which was written in the book of Luke, where he says, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he's always ministering to people up until he takes his very last breath. And then, of course, he is our high priest in, in heaven, ever uh, mediating between uh, man and God, ever serving, ever serving, ever ruling and reigning. So here he's going to provide for his mother. Back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, we read the commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, that's a commandment that has a promise in it, that if we honor our father and our mother, that our life might be longer. We know that our parents uh, should have our best interest always at heart, and if we do the things that they tell us to, why we will avoid trouble, um, we will stay in the way, and things should go generally well for us. But there's obviously another view here that... Um, the land which the Lord thy God will give thee, that their days may be long on the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee. Well, what is the Lord thy God going to give Jesus but the new heaven and the new earth, which, of course, is our inheritance as well if we honor our heavenly Father. So there's a, a, another dimension to this, as there is typically in Scripture. There's a superficial and earthly meaning, and then there's, of course, an eternal heavenly meaning. So we can appreciate that Jesus will receive eternity and uh, have the new heaven and the new earth. So Christ ever honored his, both his earthly and his heavenly parents. And so here we see him honoring his earthly uh, mother. 
Around the cross, there are five people that are present who are sympathetic to Christ. There are four women, and there is one, one man. He had said to his disciples that they would uh, be offended. He said, quote, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, that they would forsake him due to shame. Now, in Psalm 69, it speaks uh, about this, that people would be shamed when they see him, and he prays for them. He uh, intercedes for them that they would not be discouraged. In Psalm 69, we read, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink deep in mire, speaking of sin. I sink deep in mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Think of God's wrath poured out um, during the days of Noah. Think of Jonah being carried into the depths of the sea, being wrapped around and mired with, with sin. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. Verse 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. It was because of man's sin that man lost his estate and his um, place before God. And yet Christ restored that to them. He did not take that away. Man is wholly responsible for his sin and responsible for his estrangement um, between himself and God. And Christ on the cross being shamed is going to restore that which was taken away. Verse 5, O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Christ, of course, who sinned not, sin not, was made sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, it says, He who knew no sin was made sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God um, in him. So Christ, of course, this psalm here is speaking of, of Christ himself. It says, let, them, let not them that wait on thee, O Lord, O God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. What the Lord uh, is appreciating here is that he who is king of the Jews is being terribly humiliated. And it is common uh, when, uh, in biblical terms, that when people would go to war, that the king would go with them. If the king was destroyed, then the armies would fail and they would be scattered. And we read about that in the scriptures. And so it appears as though Jesus is, um, is being uh, destroyed, or it appears that he is being overcome, yet that that is not true. And so he's saying, let those that rest upon thee, those that are looking to me for salvation, do not let them be discouraged. Um, and uh, one of the things I think, um, I can't think of the word I want to use. I don't appreciate this. I do not appreciate the way the Catholic Church uh, presents Jesus. They present him in one of two places. Either he's a helpless babe in his mother's arms or he's dead on the cross. And so that is where they leave him. They, they fail to appreciate and set before the people the resurrected Christ in a meaningful way that he indeed had the victory over the grave, victory over sin, victory over death. But he's on the cross here and the Lord is, is crying out that, the, that his people would not be um, confounded, that they would not be um, discouraged by virtue of the things that are, um, that are happening to him. In Psalm 23, um, the Lord speaks of that when he says, if I can try to find that real quick, um, Psalm 23, I'm sorry, Psalm 22, and this did indeed happen, all they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake 
the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delight in thee. And indeed, that was the case. When people walked around the cross, you find this in Matthew 27, verse 43. It says, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. So they're, they're denigrating both the God who's refusing, or apparently uh, refusing to save Jesus and Jesus himself. And so the Lord is praying in Psalm um, 69 there that these people would not lose heart, that they would not be confounded nor ashamed because of what is happening to him. Verse 7, because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. And the verse I'm after here is verse 8. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Christ, of course, was um, forsaken by all of his disciples, but he was estranged by his own brethren, the um, sons of his, his mother. And so the question is, who is Jesus going to confer his mother's care to? Not his brethren. He's estranged from them. Not his earthly adoptive father, because he is dead. He does not appear anywhere um, after um, Jesus is uh, 12 years of age. So where and to whom will he um, confer his mother to? His brothers, James, Simon, Joseph, and Judas, are, have fled with the rest of the disciples, although these are not named as disciples. Um, and yet John is with him the beloved disciple. John and his mother are present. And so I think the Lord would have us to appreciate that that which unites us with Christ, of course, is love, also unites us one with another. And we read about that in John 17 when the Lord speaks about how that we would be united with each other in Christ, through Christ, as he is one with the Father, we would be one with his other. And so Jesus puts two people together whose love for him is great. John has overcome whatever fears that he might have had when he fled from Jesus in the garden, and he is now present at the cross. Who loves an individual more than their mother? And so uh, his mother is present there, um, faithful to him. Um, undoubtedly, her heart is pierced, as the scripture said it would be, with great sorrow, uh, given what is taking place with respect to her beloved son. So Jesus puts these two together. Mary undoubtedly will find peace in the care and company and provision of John. John loves her son. John is sympathetic and empathetic to what is taking place. And I think she'll find better um, companionship with him than she will with her own children who are estranged from Jesus. I think that is the experience of anybody who's a Christian in the church, that we actually um, get along better with our brothers and sisters in Christ than we do with our um, brothers and sisters in the flesh. Um, so we would expect their fellowship to be sweet as it would be for all of those who love Jesus. Um, Jesus knows this, and so he says to her, Woman, behold thy son. And so a superficial reading of this, we would just leave this with, well, she's talk he's talking about John only. <laughs> behold John as your son one who will honor and care for you as a son should, according to the Ten Commandments. To John, he says, behold thy mother, meaning honor and care for her as though she were your own mother. So we can appreciate that Lord in the midst of his great suffering yet has a heart for his mother's um, provision and that she would not only be physically cared for, but that she would receive the emotional care and support that she would find with somebody who loves him as she loves him. But there's a deeper meaning here also that I think we should appreciate when he says, woman, 
uh, behold your son, can also mean Jesus who is on the cross. Behold your son, Jesus, who is the author of salvation. Now recall back at the wedding of Canaan, it's in John chapter 2, verse 4, when Jesus says unto her, she comes to him about the issue of wine, he says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, his hour has come, and he has said that, my hour is, has come. So his hour has come, and all those who would be saved must behold Jesus. We read about this in Isaiah chapter 45, verses 19 through 20, and I'll read those. Isaiah 45, 19 through 22. God's saying here, you recall that when um, the apostle Paul was speaking before King Agrippa, speaking of the crucifixion in Christ, he said, this thing was not done in a corner. It was very public what was done to Christ. And so in Isaiah 45, he says, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth, I said not unto the seed of Jacob, Seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. Ye that are escaped of the nations, they have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven images and pray unto a God that cannot save. Verse 21. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? We should say amen. He has told it from the beginning of time, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It speaks of the gospel. Have I not the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Verse 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Here he says, behold your son. So Mary, you must behold your son, Jesus. Now to John, in this conversation, to John, Mary is called mother. To Mary, the woman who gave birth to him, his mother according to the flesh, Jesus calls her woman. He's clearly making a distinction here. To John, he uses the term mother. To Mary, he uses the term woman. So clearly the Lord is making a distinction here. He's making a distinction between the spirit and the flesh, between walking by faith and by sight, between spiritual relationships and fleshy relationships. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, he says, Wherefore, henceforth... No, we know man after the flesh. In other words, we have a very different relationship with each other now. Henceforth, we know no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known, past tense, have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. So in the context of the scriptures here, where we are at the cross, the disciples knew him according to the flesh. They knew him superficially. They had a friendly relationship with him. They knew him as a carpenter from Nazareth. They walked with him. They saw him do things. But they didn't know him after the Spirit, not until they receive the Spirit, not until he pours out the Holy Ghost or blows, breathes it on them, and they receive it. So, as with all of the saints, first we know Jesus as an historical figure, because that's where it starts. When people start talking to us about Jesus, we place him or compartmentalize him in our minds that, well, yeah, he lived 2,000 years ago, and he was Jewish, and... Um, 
He was crucified in Jerusalem. I mean, we have this historical context or who he is. So we know him first in that context. But it is through the gift of faith that we now know him for who he is, that he is God manifest in flesh, that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God, through his grace, hath shined the light uh, to give us the knowledge, shined the light in our hearts to give us the light, uh, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is an act of grace where God reveals himself to us so that we now know him not according to the flesh, but we know him according to the spirit. So Mary, as is true for all of the elect, must know Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one by whom and through whom we are saved and redeemed unto God. As it is written, this is Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. They have all gone out of the way. There are none that doeth good, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That includes Mary. Mary, just like everybody else, must be forgiven her sins. Her sins must need be expiated. So she must behold Christ on the cross. She must look to him for her salvation, who is the author and finisher of our faith as well as her faith. And so Jesus calls her woman to help her and us appreciate our spiritual salvific relationship to him. That is paramount. John, we'll see, is obedient unto his Lord. He honors his heavenly father and takes Mary at that very hour unto his own home and cares for her as his own mother. Again, through Christ having the grace that he will provide for her, care for her, love and love her just as he would his own mother. Now, I want to jump down to verse 31 here and speak about what is written there. In verse 31 of John chapter 19, we read, The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain on the cross the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day. Now, God is telling us a couple of important things here, that this is the day of preparation, and that means something to the Jews. Um, because the high day that is coming is a high day. It's a high Sabbath day. He's also telling us something here, too, that it is something, there's something different about this Sabbath day than other Sabbath days. Now, you know that the seventh day of the week was, to the Jews, a Sabbath day. It was a day that they were to honor the Lord. But the Jews had other Sabbath days that were scattered throughout the year that were associated with certain holy days. That's where we get the word holiday. We have holidays scattered throughout the year, too, and everybody here loves a three-day weekend. And guess what? The Jews like those, too. So sometimes those other seven Sabbath days would, follow, would fall near uh, or coincidental with others, the seventh day of the week. But he's telling us here it's a high day. So we should appreciate that it's associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread has two Sabbath days associated with it. The first one falls on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the other Sabbath day falls on the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's going to be three Sabbath days because it's a seven-day feast, and so somewhere in there you're going to find the seventh-day Sabbath as well. So they're, he's, they're telling us here that there's something special associated with that. So we should be thinking about, well, what happens on a Sabbath day? What's important about that? Why is it significant? Now, 
Our deacon read for us this morning from Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, where it speaks about entering into a rest. Not any rest, but entering into God's rest. So where does this notion of a rest come from? Well, it starts in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. And there the God helps us to appreciate this. He says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. God's summarizing all the things that he's done on the first six days. And let me share this with you that you'll pick up this pattern. Every time God did a creative event on a particular day, he concluded that with saying, and it was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day, and he does that all the way through. And it was evening and morning the sixth day. He says that in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God does that six times. Now we come to uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, meaning set it apart, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. This day is not closed out. What is the Lord trying to teach us here? He's speaking about a rest, and he's speaking about an eternal rest, because he doesn't close it out here. So Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 alludes to that because it speaks about entering into God's rest. So when we get to Genesis chapter 16, this is where the Lord um, articulates particularly to the Hebrew people about the Sabbath day and also the day of preparation. So in Exodus chapter 16, the Lord is introducing and telling them that he's going to feed them with manna. And manna, of course, means, what is it? In other words, they don't know what it is. Jesus is the manna from heaven. In like manner, when he came to his people, Scripture says that they received him not. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Jesus is the manna from heaven, and he was received every bit as well as the manna from the um, manna that the Lord brought in the desert was. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know who Christ was. But God says, I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to bring it to you. So... In verse 23 of um, Exodus chapter 16, the Lord says unto them, and it says, And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is a rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which ye will bake today, and seethe that which ye seethe, and that which is remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning." And they laid it up until the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm in it. Previous to that, he had given them manna, and he, they, he, God told them, go get what you need to eat for that day, but don't save any more for the next day, because if you save it for the next day, it's not going to be good, and indeed, it bred worms. But this time, what you get on the sixth day, that carries over to the seventh day. You'll eat it on the sixth day, and whatever extra you have, you save for the seventh day, and it'll be good. And so he tells them to go get that. So on verse 29 through 30, the Lord says, See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath. Therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So what is the sixth day? It's a day of preparation. He's going to give the people twice what they need so that it will carry them through the sixth day and the seventh day, and they are going to rest. God's going to give them everything that they need so that they will rest. 
He does that for us today too. He'll give us whatever we need so that on Sunday, we can just rest and worship the Lord. Now, you should think of this as a blessing. When God gives a mandatory rest, and he's got to do that, he's got to say, listen, you've got to rest because people won't. We're covetous, and we want to go earn a little extra money and do a little extra work on the seventh day so that we can have more stuff. But he says, no, I want you to rest. He also, in Leviticus 25, 1 through 5, he talks about giving the land a rest as well. So I'll go ahead and read that. In Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 5, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall a Sabbath of rest unto the land. Shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land. A Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyards. That which groweth of its own accord of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, neither gather the grapes of thy vine undressed, for it is a year of rest unto the land. Now that's got to be hard to follow if you're a farmer. You've got all that fruit in the field that you'd love to bring into your um, silos and save it up and just have a little extra stuff. But God said, no, you're going to leave it. And God's serious about this because you'll recall that when he sent them into exile, he sent them into exile one year for every Sabbath that they had, Sabbath year that they had failed to observe. If you won't give the land a rest, I'll give the land to the rest. So the point is these things have teeth in them that, that they would obey the Lord. But I want you to think about this for a minute. You've got all your neighbors around you, and they're toiling seven days a week, and they're where you are, same place you are economically, and you're only toiling six days a week. That is a blessing. God is glorifying himself in this process. Now take it to the agricultural level, level where on the seventh year you're not reaping anything from the land, and they are, and yet you're doing just fine in terms of your agricultural production. They have to see that and appreciate that God is doing something for you that he's not doing for them. God has said that I am going to sanctify you, my people. I'm going to set you apart, and you're going to be different from those around and he does that, of course, to glorify himself and to help us appreciate who he is. So this is a tremendous blessing if people would follow it. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 20, he, he shares that with us. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 10 and 11, Ezekiel 20, 10 and 11, he says, Wherefore I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt, he's speaking about the Hebrews, and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Verse 12. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So the Sabbath was made for man. It's intended to glorify God. And Jesus even says that, that the Sabbath was uh, made for man and not man for the Sabbath because the Jews and their legalistic thinking had flipped things around. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, this is codified in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, I'll read verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy maidservant, the manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, 
nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. You can appreciate why he's got to say something like that. I won't work, but my wife needs to get in there and take care of business, you know, or I'll hire somebody to do the work that I um, would want to be done. I have a business. No, he's saying shut everything down. Back when I was a kid in the Midwest, stores were shut down on Sunday. Everything was shut down. It was really was really nice. Uh, Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So he has codified it in the Ten Commandments here, and he's telling the people that this is what I want you to do. Now, as I said, these things contain some teeth in them. And so in um, Numbers chapter 15, we're going to read about a man who was just picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath day. So in Numbers 15 and verse 32 through 36. Numbers 15, 32 through 36. And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks on the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron unto all the congregation, and they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done to him. What do you think should be done to a fellow who's picking up a few sticks on the Sabbath day? Verse 35, And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall be surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. God had also told him that you would not kindle a fire on the Sabbath day either. You're not going to pick up sticks. You're not going to cook anything. You're not going to do any work on the Sabbath day. And so he's put some serious teeth in this particular commandment that if you violate it, you would be put to death. But there's always uh, an exception to the rule because the priests have to work on a Sabbath day. The Day of Atonement happens to fall on the Sabbath day. And if you read through Leviticus about the Day of Atonement, you'll find that there's a lot of work being done that particular day. Um, Also, that it might be necessary to circumcise on the uh, Sabbath day, and the Lord tells them that. In John chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, they're having a conversation about Jesus working. I'm going to put that in quotes because what he does is he heals people on the Sabbath day. In John seven twenty-one, Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision. Actually, it didn't come from Moses. It came from Abraham. But he's, and then he says here, not because it is of Moses, but of the Father's. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? So the Lord is teaching us something here about making somebody whole on the Sabbath day. So as the scripture continues in the Gospels, we uh, see that Jesus heals on the Sabbath day a number of times. It's particularly provocative to the Hebrews. On um, Luke chapter 13, he uh, heals an individual. Uh, he, he heals the woman who's bent over. Um, I'll read that, verse 10 of Luke 13. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Verse 12 of Luke 13. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loose from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day, and said unto the people, he's going to chasten him here publicly, 
There are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite, doth not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? They do that, and they do that for covetous reasons, though Jesus would do it for compassionate reasons. But he's telling him he's a hypocrite. And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And so the Lord heals on the Sabbath day because it is proper and just and right to do good on the Sabbath day. Matthew chapter 12, again, the level and accusation against him. This is Matthew chapter 12, verses 10 and 14. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, they're trying to set him up, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him how they might destroy him. So upon seeing him heal an individual, they believe he's in violation of the Sabbath, and therefore they take counsel that they might destroy him or kill him. Now the Lord has set up these Sabbath days here to teach us something. He's teaching us certainly about mercy and about compassion. And because he's healing people on the Sabbath day, we should appreciate that he is doing something to them that they cannot lawfully do for themselves. The Lord is teaching us about salvation. That is, by grace you are saved through faith and not of thyself, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. So the Lord is teaching that here, and this is what um, we would expect to see now when we come to the cross. Now, again, I'm speaking about entering into the rest associated with the Sabbath day. In Colossians chapter 2, the Lord helps us to break the code here in terms of what is happening. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 through 17, the Lord teaches us something here. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 through 17. In here, it's speaking of Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also... Ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ was circumcised when he went to the cross. He was cut off from the land of the living, and that is associated with the Sabbath day. Um, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Verse 16, let no man, therefore, therefore, based on all of the things that Christ has done, let no man, therefore, judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of unholy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, 
but the body, meaning the substance, is of Christ. So the Sabbath day is a shadow of things to come. The substance of is of Christ. So what is the Sabbath day teaching about? It's teaching about Christ himself. It's teaching that you're not resting on a particular day, but you're resting in a particular person, that we want to enter into that rest. And so that Jesus is the Sabbath, that he himself is the Sabbath of rest, is intimated when Jesus speaks in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. He's speaking to the people. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why will he give him rest? Because he's the Sabbath. The Sabbath points to him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lonely in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will have rest for your souls. We are not to, we can't enter into God's rest by, by work. You, know, you can't enter into salvation by work. But there are other things that we do strive and worry about and fret about all the time, about how we're going to get by this world, how we're going to make a living for ourselves, uh, what's coming down the road. We just worry about a lot of things. And that creates a lot of ter- inner turmoil. The Lord is saying in him, in him that we will have rest for our souls. So he's intimating that he himself is the Sabbath in whom we rest. Now, our deacon read for us Hebrews portions of chapter 3 and um, much of chapter 4. In there, what is set before us is the, the, the uh, Hebrews wandering through the wilderness, how they were to enter into the promised land when they crossed the Jordan River, and there they would find rest. Now, um, if you look at verse 8, they translate it for, if Jesus had given them rest. Jesus is the Greek form of the word Joshua. So in your mind, say, if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? The Jews didn't really have rest once they came into the promised land. They had a lot of work ahead of them. They had to subdue all of the inhabitants of the land. They were to put them out, put all their idols out. And it typifies the Christian walk that he needs to deal with his, his sin. The Philistines represent the carnality of the flesh, and the people therein represent sin. They all had to be put out. So they didn't actually get a rest when they got in there. But he also sets this paradigm before us here, that there's really another rest that is waiting for the people of God. And it's about entering into his rest, his rest. And what is his rest? Who is the his that's made reference to in verse 10? For he that is entered into his rest, he also has has ceased from his own works as God did from his. When you cease from your works in the context of salvation, you are entering into God's rest. That's up in verse Four, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So as I shared with you back in Genesis chapter 2, the seventh day is not closed out. It's intimating an eternal rest that God rests in, and we would rest in God, and this we would do by faith, because the people that were wandering in the wilderness, that the Lord took through the wilderness 40 years, none of them could enter in um, that left Um, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, none of them could enter into the promised land, enter into that rest because of lack of faith. And so he says that in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. 
And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, God's rest, but them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You cannot enter into the rest of the Lord except by faith. And so he closes out this section here, sharing with us in verses 12 and 13, that all things are naked and open unto the eyes with whom we have to do. God knows, Jesus knows whether or not we truly trust in him or not, or whether or not we are endeavoring to enter into that rest via our own works. Now, don't get uh, caught up by this, by verse 11, where it says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. What that means is that should be your preoccupation. That should be your mindset. That should be your desire. That should be your heart to enter into the eternal rest of the Lord. And that, of course, is only by faith that we would enter into that rest. So we enter into God's rest by faith, and we enter into God's rest because of the work that Jesus did on the day of preparation. We trust and we rest in him, again, because of what he did on the day of preparation. All four Gospels tell us that it was the day of preparation. So clearly the Lord is um, teaching us something. Now, remember back in Exodus chapter 16, the Lord said, Hey, I'll take care of you, and I'll give you twice as much as you need on the sixth day to carry you into the day of rest. Jesus is going to do the same thing. In John chapter 14, verses 1 and 4, verses we're all familiar with, John 14, 1 through 4, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. And everybody should own this. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may also, may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. He's already told them what he's going to do. He's told them where he's going to go, and he's going to prepare a place for them. Now, what day do you suppose Jesus was going to go and prepare a place for them? How about on the day of preparation? <laughs> And that's when he is. He's on the day before the Sabbath. It is the day of preparation. And where did he go? He went to the cross to expiate our sins and bear the wrath of God on our behalf. He says, you know the way. And what is the way? He tells him a few verses later. He is the way. We enter into the rest of the Father by Christ. He says that I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Again, the Lord knows our hearts. All things are naked and open unto him, and we cannot enter into that rest except we go through him. Our faith and trust has to be exclusively in Christ. So as, we, um, as I close out this, we must, uh, of course, appreciate our need to rest in the Lord for salvation. We cannot work our way in. The wages of sin is death, and if you endeavor to work your way in, you will surely die just as that man who picked up sticks on a Sabbath day was stoned to death. You cannot enter in by any other means than faith. The Lord should be our rest for all things. In Matthew chapter 6, he runs us through his providential care for us in a, in a material sense, how he does everything for us. In verse 25 through 34, he says, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life, meaning eternal life, more than meat and the body, 
than raiment? And the answer is yes. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? The answer is yes. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? And the answer is yes, we have eternal life and God cares for us every step of the way. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Wherefore shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. People are driving themselves crazy, providing for themselves, and part of the rat race and concerned and worried about what, what's going to happen to them tomorrow. The saint should never have a concern or a worry, really, about anything. God cares for us and takes care of us every step of the way. All we need to do is look to him and trust in him. All our trials and tribulations he has ordained for our good. Verse 32, For after these things do the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Imagine thinking that God doesn't know you're going to need to eat tomorrow. <laughs> he knows everything you need. But seek ye first the kingdom of, head, this, uh, kingdom of God. This should be our preoccupation, ever loving and worshiping the Lord and his righteousness, and to all these things uh, shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take care of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Of course, the Lord will take care of us. And he sets this wonderful contrast or comparison before us when he says in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What goodly thing would God possibly withhold from us, having given us his very Son, his indeed which, whom he is united with. God died for us on the cross. Uh, our uh, deacon intimated something about God judging sin. God will judge sin everywhere he finds it, including if he finds it in his own Son. He has done everything that is required for us, and he did it on the day of preparation, preparing for us, giving us everything that we would need to enter into eternal rest. For Christ is indeed our preparation. Amen.